Good morning. Well, our Old Testament reading this morning is Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Moses writes here that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then in the New Testament, turn to Romans 10, if you'd like. Thank you, Scott. Romans 10, 5 to 17, the apostle writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this morning we, we give ourselves to, um, to the preaching of your word. We surrender to your spirit. Dear Holy Spirit, work here in this place and in each heart and accomplish that which you desire. I pray, Lord, that that which we need is, is not only given, but it's received and embraced and applied. We pray that you would do a great work to bring glory to your name in 
opening our eyes to see Jesus this morning and opening our ears to hear Your voice and opening our hearts to to hold fast to the truth of the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Romans 10 is our text this morning. Have faith in the word of faith. And um, I took that title from Romans 10, uh, verse 8, where Paul says, What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So that word of faith. So this is um, not a continuation of last week, but it's definitely connected. Um, Remember last week we were in Luke 15 with the two, the first two parables there after Jesus was um, sitting with the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and Pharisees for... um, were in opposition to him associating with and being near and showing love to the lowest of society. And, and he remember he told those two parables to explain what he was doing in that this is me going after that one sheep. This is me going after that coin. And, um, and so I wanted to look at Romans 10... <laughs> And it's funny because as I was getting into it, I thought, what did I get, what did I get myself into? This passage, Josh, really? Um, but it's okay. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of parallels between uh, Romans 10 and Luke 15, and actually Luke 14 going into 15, um, just with the Lord's work and His people and Israel and their rejection of Him. Um, and that's what Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Um, if you're familiar with the passage there. But what I really want us to do is I want us to trust in the will of God um, in saving the lost and to see that, um, and to trust in the whole process and to see that we are a part of that process. There, there is no other um, plan. You know, there really is no plan B. Um, yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, But, how does the gospel get to the lost? It's through us. It's through the church. Um, And so, so let's look at those, let's look at those things. So, Romans 10.5, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them, this is from Leviticus 18.5. And what he's saying is, if you look at what Moses was teaching, it's that the requirement for life is to live by the law of God. And to fail to live by God's law is to surely bring death. Another way to say failing to live by God's law is just what we know as sinning. Missing that mark. Not living up to the, the righteousness that is commanded. Uh, We know from Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, right? So um, through obedience, one can find life, but, well, 
through sinning, one will surely find death. And what he's saying here is um, the righteousness which is of the law tells us that you need to obey the entirety of the law to live. To live. Um, and there's only one who fulfilled that law, and it's Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what Paul is saying there when he says it's the end of the law, he's not saying now the law no longer needs to be um, taken into account. The law no longer needs to be um, considered, obeyed. Um, on the contrary, we are to still obey the law. But it's not how we find our righteousness, is it? Um, when he says that Christ is the end of the law, he's saying Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes or on behalf of all who believe. And we know this. If we believe in Christ's work on our behalf, then his righteousness is accounted to us. Right? So the only way for us to, in God's eyes, um, the only way for God to see us as righteous is to, is to see us in his son Christ. Uh, if one is to have righteousness through the law fulfilled, or to live by it, like Paul says, he has to obtain it by believing in Christ. Now Israel's problem was that they did not believe. All of man's problem is unbelief. Or the absence of faith from a heart of flesh. You see, that's a distinction that we need to understand. For there is faith that accounts for nothing, right? Even the demons believe and they tremble, right? There's an intellectual faith, an understanding. There is a, there is a grasp that can be had by the greatest enemy of God, Satan himself, who knows the Scripture in multiple languages back and forth. And, and believe me, Satan knows that God became man in order to die for his creation to provide a way of salvation. There's no confusion on Satan's part of who Jesus is, of what the Gospel is. He understands it better than us intellectually. Um, that's, not, that's not the faith there. And I would, I would equate that to faith of a heart of stone, right? But we need faith from a heart of flesh after the Lord works in us according to His grace and replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Where we will have no, no longer this problem of unbelief. Jesus spoke of this in John 16, verse 8 and 9. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, this is right after... He said that it's to your advantage that I go away. And when he says the Holy Spirit comes, this is what he will do. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he goes on to explain of sin because what? We know this, right? Because they do not believe in me. That's it. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me, Jesus said, our ultimate need is to believe in Him, and in doing so, we obtain the righteousness of Christ because He fulfilled the law. Because He was the end of the law. Not to everyone, for those who believe. For those who believe. For those who don't believe, 
then the consequences of sin for breaking God's law remain. There is no life, there is death alone for those who do not believe. Now, Israel ignorantly sought the impossible. Um, why do I say that? Because in verse 3 prior to our, our passage of Scripture, we see that Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness, and they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Um, they ignorantly sought the impossible, and that is righteousness through the law, or righteousness without grace, or righteousness on their own. Now, continuing on in verse 6 and 7, we see that what this righteousness of faith is. 6 through 13 is this whole righteousness of faith. Um, and it's going to explain what Paul's talking about in, first, in verse 4. Christ is the end of, righteous, end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verses 6 and 7, this is what the righteousness of faith tells man not to say. Read with, read with me if you would, or follow along. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So this is what the righteousness of faith tells us not to say. Who will ascend to bring Christ down? Who will descend to bring Christ up? Let's turn together, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 30, because this is what Paul is referencing. Deuteronomy 30, and we'll, we'll read verses 11 through 14. I just realized that I have my wife's Bible. <laughs> Hi, babe. <laughs> it's so I could read from the King James, or the New King James, and, uh, and not the Holman, which is my mine. Um, but I realize that probably none of you have the Holman, so that's okay. New King James. Okay, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. This is, what, this is what it says. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. This is, this is very important to understanding the text in Romans chapter 10. So Deuteronomy is speaking of the commandment of God. And what Moses is saying is really that it's not to be attained, this obedience to the command of God is not to be attained by the work of man, um, but it's there, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Now, when we look at what Paul does with this passage, and he's saying that 
in verses 6 and 7 of Romans 10 that the command can be replaced with Christ Himself. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, he tells us that to fulfill the command of God is to have it done on our behalf. Because when he replaces command from Deuteronomy with Christ in Romans, we see that the perfect law keeper, Jesus, was the perfect God pleaser on our behalf. And so righteousness of faith does not say do. Does not say ascend or descend or mankind muster everything you can, all of your resources, bring together your best minds, come up with the best plan, and how will we ascend to heaven to bring Christ down, to bring the chosen one of God down? You know, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that is the entirety of all the religions of the world, save biblical Christianity. Man working to God. Or... Or, do not say who will, who will descend into the depths to raise Christ from the dead. You see, the incarnation, the resurrection, were both works of God alone and everything in between and thereafter and before. The righteousness of faith doesn't say do, it says done. God sent His Son to earth. Man does not go up and bring Him down. God raised His Son from the grave. And we know that throughout Scripture there are many references of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being involved in both of those things. But God, our triune God, saves of His own will. Nothing to do with us. One must believe that the entirety of salvation must be of God because we are entirely incapable of righteousness by ourselves. Just like Paul is using the example of Israel in Romans chapter 10. So if you're not there, turn back there. So we are told what not to say. We're told not to say, let's do it. Now, verse 8 tells us what the righteousness of faith does say. It's done. Romans 10, 8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And so, interestingly here too, you know from Deuteronomy when Moses Um, was talking about the command, and then here in Romans 10, he speaks of Christ who's going to ascend, who's going to descend and bring him up. But then here in verse 8, he says, the word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. In other words, think of what he's saying. You don't have to go. You don't have to do. It's there. It is there. And the word is is Jesus. The righteousness of faith says that He comes to you. You don't find Him. 
We know Scripture says that we love Him because He first loved us. The righteousness of faith says that it is all of God. Man initiates nothing. It's entirely of grace. So what is this word of faith preached by Paul in verse 8? So we know that there's this contrast between the righteousness which is of the law, which if you don't fulfill, you will be um, left to your death. Eternal damnation. Um, And there's the righteousness of faith. And we believe in the only one who fulfilled the righteousness of the law, Jesus Christ. And we understand that in order to hear the word of faith of this good news of righteousness that can come by faith, we need to understand that we don't initiate anything, that we don't bring anything to the table. We don't, we don't traverse anything, anywhere, anytime to have that word in our mouth and in our hearts. So the word of faith that's preached by Paul is this. Complete reliance and trust are to be in God for righteousness. And and nothing is of yourself. Nothing is of yourself. Verse 9 says that if we, or if you, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this, this verse is so often taken out and used as a recipe or a prescription for salvation. Um, in, in other words, would you like to be saved? Um, well, you need to do this and this, right? That seems sort of contradictory what Paul has been saying thus far, doesn't it? It's not a recipe for salvation that we would use this to preach to the lost. We would use this to find a promise of assurance to ourselves. That's what Paul is saying here. Because he just said the word is near. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. The word of faith which we preached to you, that if you confess, confess what? The word. If you believe, believe what? That word. That word that is near. You don't go and ascend. You don't go and descend and bring Christ up. There is nothing to do with works except for the works of Christ on your behalf. Paul's not doing an about face here and saying, it's all about grace, all about grace, all about grace. And by the way, you need to believe. You need to confess. Because what's man going to end up doing in that case? Well, I believed in Jesus. I said a prayer. There's no boasting. It's clear in Ephesians chapter 2 as well, isn't it? That faith in the process of our salvation is just as much a gift of God as every other part. Now, here at the end of verse 9, when he says, you shall be saved, 
Jesus. We need to remember that salvation is an umbrella under which there are many things. There are things we are saved from. There are things we are saved unto. There's the forgiveness of sins, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ that ensures our salvation. I think in verse 8, we see regeneration. We know this from, um, I referenced it earlier, Ezekiel 36.26. That's when the Lord says that He will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And actually, John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, I think that's the passage that He's referring to. Ezekiel 36, when he speaks about being born again. And then in verse 9 and 10, I think we see the new heart that is trusting in Christ for righteousness, that is overflowing because the mouth is confessing the lordship of Christ their Savior. From the heart comes the, the words that we speak. Verse 10 says here, the, with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, we know that salvation is for the saint, right? And not just for the sinner. Salvation for the sinner is found in verse 8 when the word is near you, it's in your it's on, your, uh, it's on your lips, in your mouth, it's in your heart. And then it's for, the, it's for the saints in verses 9 and 10 in that once you are born again, once you are given that new heart, once you are regenerated, then you cry. And from the moment of your justification, from the moment you are made alive and you cry out to the Lord, and every moment after unto the culmination and throughout all of eternity, you will experience salvation. Two separate things here. Continuing on in verse 11, Paul says that the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Paul is still, he has Israel in mind. Israel prior to this and after finishing up in chapter 10. Because it's not just whoever calls on the name of the Lord, right? How many unbelievers call on God's name? And yet, will they find salvation? Right? Um, not just for merely calling out His name. If they call out through the righteousness which is of faith, they will. Trusting entirely in the work of God on their behalf, they will. For their forgiveness of sins and for the righteousness of Christ given to them, they will be saved. If God grants life, then life cries out back to life. The way I think of it is, the first cry of a new spiritual baby is, Save me! There's nothing else that can be cried. 
we see in each verse here, in verse 11 and in verse 12 and in verse 13, you believe on Him, you call upon Him, you call on the name of the Lord, you will not be put to shame, His riches are for you, and you will be saved. I mean, think about the idea also of of not being uh, able to trust in that promise for your own salvation. The Lord would have to remove the righteousness of Christ from you, and then He would have to put your sins back onto you. Ridiculous. And yet, how many people live in that constant fear and stress? And I'll tell you why many of our friends and our family and our brothers and sisters and some of the churches which we came from, myself included, think that way is because there was never a complete understanding of the gospel in the first place. And that is that it is all of God. You see, what we try to do is we, we try to say, believe in Christ, but really in the back of our minds, there's still this righteousness of the law that we're trying to attain for ourselves, which will never bring us righteousness. We're as ignorant as Israel in that regard. So if God has shown you His amazing grace in initiating your salvation by causing your new birth, then He will surely complete it. You will be saved. That's what verses 11 through 13 are saying. You will be saved. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He who has granted that the word of faith preached by Paul and now given to the church to preach, that is near you, that is in your mouth and in your heart, that one will bring it to completion for sure. You will be saved. You can count on your justification. And you can count on your Savior being your Savior for the entirety of your walk. Even when you don't cry out to Him, He comes after you. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 teaches? You've gone astray, child of God. Your Father will come after you if you are His. It is a sure thing. If you are left to your sin, if you are left to your habitual selfishness, then there is a good reason to question whether or not you were ever born again in the first place. Because God planned for every one of His own to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So even when we do go astray, and even in those times when we're not calling... God comes after us that we might in turn repent as it's granted by Him and then call out to Him and again live in salvation. We never lost it. Verses 14 and 15. We get to see here how, how does God do this work in the heart of man? And to bring this back to Luke 15... How does the shepherd go after that one sheep? How does the woman search after her coin? 
So let's read verses 14 and 15. Paul says here, well, start in verse 13 for the flow. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So there's the, there's the order of things, but it's backwards. So to get the idea, let's flip it on its head, okay? So first, so we're going to go from 15a backwards, right? First, a preacher has to be sent. And then that preacher has to preach Christ. And then the message has to be heard. And then what heard, what is heard has to be believed. And then belief in that message causes one to call upon Him. And then there is a sure hope of salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I love it how the end of verse 15, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, how beautiful, this is from Isaiah, are the feet of those who preach the gospel of grace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is what the Lord counts as beautiful. In a culture where beauty is is wrongly defined and and misapplied and and given too much time for the wrong reasons. Um, we need to see this. We need to know this. We need to encourage this. Where God sees you leaving where you are where you might be prone to staying in the comfort of your own definition of beauty, you leave that. And you go to the highways and the hedges. And you sit with the tax collectors and the sinners. And think about the time here, too. I mean, you couldn't just order shoes on Amazon, right? Um, they didn't have, like, this crazy highway budget. Um, you know, are we going to put sidewalks in our town this year? I don't know, right? I mean, like, like, they didn't do that. Feet were dirty then. They were disgusting. But God sees them as beautiful. I mean, not just any feet. Those who go to bring the good news to those who don't have the good news. That's what God sees as beautiful. Are we, are we invested in that? Um, I don't say this as an indictment upon us at all. Um, I just say this as an example to get us thinking. Do you remember, and how could any of us forget that we're here, the remodel? <laughs> you know, the painting and the, the pews and everything. And you guys, we called 
for a day of fasting for that. And I know that there's practicality to whether or not we're going to have pews, keep the old pews, get new pews, have chairs, whether we're going to leave this thing up there, that painting, the, you know, the Masonic Lodge symbol. (laughs) What, you know, but we fasted regarding this physical building and the appearance thereof. And then... (laughs) I know that's not the only reason. It was also so that the Lord would keep us in unity during the process, but... And then we would all come in after and he'd say, this place is beautiful. And it is, and that's not wrong. For us to look at this place and sit in these pews and, and say, praise God for what he has provided for us. But if that's the case, how much more should we fast? For the Lord to see us as those with beautiful feet going to preach the gospel to those who have not heard it. See what I mean? Contrast that. And you're saying, well, Josh, you're an elder. Call fasting. Call a day of fasting. We, we should, Scott. And I'm sure Seth will be in support but isn't it amazing, though, the, the cultural difference? So how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and who bring glad tidings of good things. In other words, who preach the word of faith. Verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? If you remember Isaiah's call and In um, Isaiah chapter 6, he was basically told that he was to go and, and bring the word of God to the people of God and it will have um, no, what we would call, positive effect. There'll be no converts. There'll be, you know, no one who's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with you, Isaiah. Imagine that ministry. But Isaiah was a faithful prophet of God bringing the word to his people. And yet, look what he says. Lord, who has believed our report? Because not all have obeyed. And then verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, what Paul is saying is that in order to obey the gospel... Verse 16, they have not all obeyed. You must hear the gospel. And it's not just physical hearing. It's, remember Luke 14 at the end of the chapter? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not just, yeah, I heard it. Because all of Israel heard the word of God and they did not believe. It's, are you granted by the grace of God the ability to hear? In other words, are you given that life? Has your heart been replaced? Are you born again? It's those who have ears to hear. So then faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. And this is where um, I think the, the, the King James and the New King James can cause some confusion here because... Really what it's saying is the message of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the message of Christ. 
the word of faith. Trusting in that one who is near in your mouth and in your heart, not in you fulfilling the law in any way, but in Christ doing it on your behalf. You see. So the message of Christ is preached. You are made alive and then you have faith. So Paul is saying in verse 17. And then verses 18 to 21, um, especially 20 and 21, they focus. Um, well, let's just read it here. Isaiah is very bold and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's talking about the Gentiles. And then verse 21, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. See, that's the the basic uh, gist of Isaiah's um, ministry, isn't it? All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's not as though they were not um, preached to. Now, remember in Luke 14 with the parable of the banquet... And those who were invited, they actually gave their RSVPs and they said, yeah, I'll be there. And then when the time came, they're like, no, I got to go do this. I have some oxen. I just got, a, just got married. I have a wife, you know, this, that, yada, yada, life. So I'm not going to come. So we'll go find more people. Go find more people. Well, we did, you know, but there's still empty chairs. Well, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. To who? To these in verse 20. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. And remember, that was in our confession of sin last week in Romans chapter 3. There are none that seek after God. So how, if you're not seeking, can you find? And how in the world can you ask for what has not been made manifest to you? I'll tell you how. It's given to you. It is given to you. John chapter 3, we know that We know that um, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he and Nicodemus is confused at what's going on about being born again and how can you enter into your mother's womb for a second time and then like, I just don't get it. And Jesus is like, this is not physical, it's spiritual. And then he says, it's a work of God alone. The Spirit moves as He wills. Just like the wind, you see the effects thereof, but you do not know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see it moving. It's God doing the work. So the title of this sermon is Have Faith in the Word of Faith. Have Faith in the Gospel of Christ. And that is not only for ourselves and our realizing and living in and experiencing the Gospel of God. That it is nothing to do with ourselves. It's all of His grace. But it's also to have faith that the Spirit is moving in John chapter 3. The Spirit is convicting John chapter 16. Remember, Jesus went away, sent His Spirit, He convicts the world of sin because they do not believe. The shepherd is seeking, Luke 15. He's seeking for His one sheep. He will go find that sheep. That shepherd never fails. He does not go on expeditions where he will not bring back that sheep. 
The woman is searching for her lost coin, sweeping, lighting a lamp. The father is running towards his son, who was dead, who was lost, who is now alive, who is now found, brought back into the family, not because of any works he has done, but all because of the grace of the Father. Have faith in the preaching of the word of faith. In that, when we see what we know normally in you know Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's probably one of the most quoted two verses, right? And and at least Christendom, where there's, you know, a little bit of biblical um, awareness. But we have to see that in the whole context of, of the grace of God unto the salvation of His people. And I remember being in the camp of the church that would look down upon Reformed theology that would look down upon Calvinism, that would look down upon the doctrines of grace, that would that would um, argue with it with um, volatility, with hatred, and that's not the Bible. And you know, people who think that you know just sit around and they do nothing. You know, people who think that just God does everything, right? That's not true. We do think that God does everything, but guess what? To know the entirety of the Scripture, a preacher has to be sent to preach the Gospel so that one might hear and believe and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's the whole. That's the balance. That's the middle. That's where we should be. Trusting in God entirely in His message while we go. Right? That's what the church is to do. So I ask you, in that process, in the Romans 10 process, especially in verse 14 and 15, and then some of it summarized in verse 17, where are we? And where are you? Are you sending? Are you going? Is this on your radar? This is on our radar. It should be. This is the plan of God to find his sheep and to find his coin. And let's just end with turning to Matthew. Matthew 28. What we would call the the Great Commission in verse 18. You know, James says, show me your faith by your works, right? We should apply that to this, especially us who have such a God-granted gift of an understanding of His grace. Shouldn't we? We should be going to the highways and the hedges more than anyone else because we, by His grace, understand that it's all of Him. Shouldn't we? 
Matthew 28:18 and Jesus came and spoke to them and said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age amen So although we should not endeavor to do this work only by ourselves, for we are called to preach the gospel by ourselves, but we, we should not endeavor like we're just on our own. You're on an island, good luck, I'll see you in heaven. Then you can tell me how you did preaching the gospel, how many people the Lord saved through it. No. We are to do it together, supporting each other, stirring each other up to this good work. But when you are by yourself, when you are talking to your neighbor, when you're talking to your coworker, talking to your, your family member, um, when you're on the phone with your cousin from, you know, who knows where and you haven't talked to in how long, and, you know, you run into that guy that you used to go to school with, and you are on your, loan, on your own, you're not on your own. Lo, I am with you always. When you go to the highways and the hedges, when you sit down with the tax collectors and sinners, even to the end of the age, Jesus is with you as your example to do what he did in your justification now as you're walking with him to work in you his grace to obey his command to go. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God. We um, we ask for uh, we ask for your grace that we might with you go um, and and when we go and when we're successful when when children come to our BBS and when children come to our youth group when when the community comes to our our food pantry and our clothes closet, Lord, when we do have those interactions individually, when, when we do see you working, there will still be empty chairs. Help us to go again. And help us to keep going. And to not have a zeal for God that is not according to knowledge, but by your Spirit, your love compelling us, dear Christ, have a, a zeal for you, a heart after you, to please you and be used by you. Lord, do that work in us. Lord, I pray that, that there is also, um, I hope, a, a clarity of understanding of our justification and of our sanctification and our glorification, our promise of heaven forever, that it never was of us and it never will be, help us to really hold fast to the promise that you who started this work in us will surely complete it in Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.